7. William Forster Lloyd and Utility Theory in England Just because Mountefort Longfield and the Trinity Connection had no influence in England does not mean that the utility theory of value died out with such prominent economists as Bailey and Sr., Indeed, Nassau Sr.'s successor in the Drummond chair at Oxford was also a distinguished utility theorist. William Forster Lloyd, 1794-1852, was the son of an Anglican rector from Gloucestershire. Lloyd went to Christ Church, Oxford, where he took a first in mathematics and a second in classics. Lloyd was a reader in Greek and then a lecturer in mathematics at Christ Church, and was also ordained as an Anglican minister, but never served a parish. Lloyd held the Drummond chair from 1832 to 1837, and seems to have done little at all after that. A sickly man, Lloyd retired to his county and displayed little interest in economics, in writing, or in politics, before dying in middle age. But for Lloyd, as for the other Drummond and Whateley chairholders, his term as professor provided him both opportunity and stimulus to compose, deliver, and publish lectures in economics. His various lectures, including one delivered on value in 1833, were all published separately and then collected and republished as Lectures on Population, Value, Poor Laws, and Rent, 1837. One does not have to agree in politics to have similar views of economic theory. We have seen, for example, James Lawson's hardcore attitude against the peasantry. While William Lloyd was a utility theorist, he was far from a Whateleyan at Oxford. On the contrary, at Oxford Lloyd belonged to the high Tory circle at Christ Church that was the main counterweight to the liberals at Oriel. Leader of the Christchurch Tories was William's elder brother, Charles Lloyd, 1774-1829, who tutored future Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel at Christchurch, and soon became a close friend and advisor to Peel. At his untimely death in 1829, Charles Lloyd was Regis Professor of Divinity and Canon of Christ Church, as well as serving as Bishop of Oxford. He was widely known as the most influential Oxford professor of his day. Even though Lloyd taught and inspired many of the leaders of the future ultra-Tory proto-Catholic Oxford movement, he himself, as well as William Lloyd, was a moderate Peelite Tory, both theologically and politically. The influence of Peel and of his late brother Charles undoubtedly secured the Drummond chair for William Lloyd. Most of Lloyd's lectures were devoted to his quasi-statist and paternalistic views on public policy. Of particular interest, however, was his lecture on value. There Lloyd, stumbling through the literature, thinks he discovers in the wealth of nations inspiration for a subjective theory of value. Value, Lloyd asserts, is a feeling of the mind, 
It can be understood as belonging to a single object, he added, where the feeling reveals itself at the margin of separation between the satisfied and unsatisfied wants. But value, or even utility, cannot be intrinsic to any object. Utility, points out E. R. A. Seligman of Lloyd's theory, is predicated of an object with reference to the wants of mankind. Ice is useful in summer, useless in winter. Still, the intrinsic qualities of ice are at all times and in all places the same. After treading what was by now familiar ground about an increase in the supply of an object, diminishing and eventually satiating demand, William Lloyd suddenly arrives at a great light, a remarkably clear portrayal of the law of diminishing marginal utility. Lloyd points out, let us suppose the case of a hungry man having one ounce and only one ounce of food at his command. To him, this ounce is obviously of very great importance. Suppose him now to have two ounces. They are still of great importance, but the importance of the second is not equal to that of the single ounce. In other words, he would not suffer so much from parting with one of his two ounces as he would suffer when he had only one ounce by parting with that one and retaining none. The importance of a third ounce is still less than that of the second, so likewise of a fourth, until at length, in the continual increase of the number of ounces, we come to a point when the appetite is entirely lost. With respect to a single ounce, it is a matter of indifference whether it is parted with or retained. Thus, while he is scantily supplied with food, he holds a given portion of it in great esteem, in other words, he sets a great value on it. When his supply is increased, his esteem for a given quantity is lessened. In other words, he sets a less value on it. Similarly, Lloyd goes on, the utilities of different goods compared with one another, and each of their values falls with increase in supply. So, a good that may be more valuable than another in an absolute philosophic sense, in the sense of a class of the commodity, can be worth very little if its supply is abundant. Thus, water is more wanted by a man almost dying with thirst than by another who has quenched his thirst and desires only to wash himself. It is on want, thus estimated, that value depends. More specifically, if to a man who has already half a dozen coats you should offer to give another, he might probably reply that he would have no use for it. Here, however, he would speak not of the abstract utility of the coat, but of its special utility to him under the circumstances of his want of coats being already so far supplied. This, though not quite the same thing as value, approaches very near to it. The coat would be of no use to him. Therefore, were he to have it, it would not be valuable in his estimation. But this is very different from the utility of the coat in the general sense of utility.
William Lloyd was also clear that value, being subjective, could not be measured. In a passage reminiscent of and going beyond Bailey, he writes trenchantly that, it would indeed be difficult to discover any accurate test by which to measure either the absolute utility of a single object, or the exact ratio of the comparative utilities of different objects. Still, it doesn't follow that the notion of utility has no foundation in the nature of things. It does not follow that because a thing is incapable of measurement, therefore it has no real existence. The existence of heat was no less undeniable before thermometers were invented than at present. Lloyd goes on to point out quite correctly that value or valuation is anterior to exchange and that such valuations also take place in the case of an isolated Robinson Crusoe economy. Unfortunately, Lloyd was so enamored of the distinction between value and exchange, and of Smith's faulty split between use and exchange values, that he failed to complete the task of the theory of demand and link up marginal utility analysis with consumer demand and the determination of market pricing. Such men as Butt, Longfield, Lloyd, and Bailey had hammered out many of the building blocks of the marginal utility theory of pricing, and even of the marginal productivity theory of factor prices. It required the Austrians, however, to put the pieces together and set forth an integrated whole. If Lloyd's value theory seems to have had little or no influence in England, the eminent Nassau Senior's utility theory was picked up and lauded a decade after the publication of his lectures. Thomas C. Banfield, circa 1800 to 1860, had spent many years in Germany, and in his 1844 lectures at Cambridge, Banfield brought to England the good news that economic theory on the continent was not blighted by any Ricardian miasma. Instead, he noted that a flexible form of Smithianism was dominant in Europe. In addition to basing his doctrines on Say, von Storch, and Senior, Banfield was the first English economist to refer to the marginal theorist Heinrich von Thunen and to the advanced Smithian Friedrich von Hermann. In the preface to his lectures, published as The Organization of Industry, 1845, Thomas Banfield pointed to the enormous changes that had been made in economic theory during the past two decades by the subjective theory of value, which demands of producers at least as much attention to the physical and mental improvement of their consuming fellow citizens as to the mechanical operations or production. Wages, he noted, will depend on the productivity of labor, that is, the utility of the instrument of which a man understands the use. In his lectures, Banfield emphasized the relativity and degree of intensity of wants as the function of economic science. 
It certainly seems that economics in England by the later 1840s was poised for a mighty Austrian breakthrough, for an integrated system elaborating the effect of human purposes and values and their interaction with the scarcity of resources. Yet something happened, and economics, poised for a great breakthrough, sank back into the slough of fallacies constituting the Ricardian system. And the important body of pre-Austrian or anti-Ricardian thought was forgotten, as if it never existed, only to be resurrected either a generation later or as late as the twentieth century. How this unfortunate retrogression came about will be treated below. 8. A Utility Theorist in Kentucky If the Trinity College contributions to subjective utility theory remained unknown outside Ireland, still more obscure was an isolated and amazing contribution in the course of several articles in a Kentucky newspaper. Written by the youngish but influential editor of the Frankfort, Kentucky Argus, Amos Kendall, 1789-1869, later to become a leading brain-truster of Andrew Jackson in his battle against fractional reserve banking and particularly against the Bank of the United States, the articles remained unread and unknown even in the United States until exhumed by historians in the twentieth century. And yet, especially considering that they were written in 1820, antedating Bailey and even Craig, they were phenomenal. Not only did they champion subjective value, they were the first expression of the law of diminishing marginal utility. Kendall was moved to explore the question of economic value by a fierce dispute in Kentucky during the catastrophic Panic of 1819 on whether or not debtors should receive relief at the hands of the state government. While Kendall was not opposed to all relief measures, he was disturbed by proposals that would have repudiated all existing debt. To explore the subject in depth, Kendall published three articles in the Argus, beginning on 27 April, examining the problems of money and, more fundamentally, the nature of value. Unfortunately, in his autobiography, arranged and edited posthumously by his son-in-law, Kendall gives no hint on which economists might have inspired his advanced views. In his first article, Kendall went straight to the basics and examined the question of value per se. He begins by saying that there have been many erroneous explanations of value, labor expended, price, even demand. But, he points out, all these notions are erroneous. Things have value not because they are produced by labor, nor because they are in general demand, nor because they will sell or exchange for a certain number of dollars, but simply because men desire to possess them. Desirableness is value. In exact proportion that a thing is desirable, it is valuable. 
Kendall went on in dismissing the value paradox to say that water and air have little or no value because of their abundance. Were meat and bread as common as air and light, they would possess no more value. They would not create desire. In the Garden of Eden, land, being superabundant, possessed no value. Labor, Kendall went on, conferred no value, for, with regard to the produce of labor, value is generally antecedent to the labor of production. It springs from our desire to possess that which labor may produce. Were labor to fix value upon its products, everything on which much has been spent would be very valuable. This notoriously is not the fact. But labor could not make a thing valuable which was not desirable. Labor may be wasted, it may be applied to the production of that which nobody desires, which has no value. And, Kendall sparklingly concludes, things do not become valuable because men spend labor upon them, but men spend their labor upon them because they are valuable. The demand for a product, furthermore, stems from men's desire to obtain it. The desire is primary. Demand is not, therefore, the cause of value. A thing becomes desirable or valuable before there is a demand for it. The demand follows. But when the desire to possess it cease, it has value no longer, and it is no longer in demand. The next step for Kendall is that desires, being subjective and evanescent, cannot be measured, and that therefore neither can value. What standard can be invented for the desires of men? Can the necessities, the comforts, the pleasures, the fashions, the opinions, and the caprices of man be reduced to any standard? Are they not ever changing like the winds of heaven? Measure never varies. A yard is always equal to the length with which it is compared. These lengths, surfaces, and quantities never vary or change. Therefore, they may be reduced to a standard, which shall be uniform and last forever. But does value never vary? Will that which is now worth a dollar always be worth just the same sum? Tastes and desires are ever-changing, and so, therefore, is value. Hence, it can have no measure or standard. Kendall then concludes his devastating critique, one that we might wish Ricardo and his epigones had read and understood. To make a standard of value, you must first make every acre of ground, every bushel of wheat, and any given quantity of any other article, at all times, in all situations, and under all circumstances, sell for precisely the same amount. There must be no such thing as profit or loss, or buying or selling. We have said enough to show the utter impossibility of a standard of value, and that to talk seriously of any such thing is simply ridiculous. We may as well talk of a standard of hunger, thirst, opinion, fashion, caprice, and all those wants which make things desirable.
9. Wages and Profits In addition to the labor theory of value, another vital cornerstone of the Ricardian system, the alleged inverse relation of wages and profits, was also riddled quickly by British economists. We have already seen the disappearance of the hardcore Malthus of the first edition of the Essay on Population, so necessary to the conclusions of Ricardian theory. Even more than the explicit rejection of Malthusianism, the periodicals vehemently attacked the Ricardian view that wages and profits move inversely to each other. The British critic denounced this thesis as early as October 1817, and two years later another writer zeroed in on the methodology of what would later be called the Ricardian vice with proper scorn. Taking for granted, as usual, that money never changes in value, and the proportion between the supply and demand of any given commodity never alters, which is as if the astronomer were to assume, as the basis of his calculations, that all the planets stand still, and that they all stand still to all eternity, he assigns a specific sum to be divided between the master and the workman as the unalterable price of the goods which they produce, from which adaptation of hypothetical conditions it naturally follows that, if the workmen get more, the master-manufacturer must receive less, there being only a certain sum to divide between them. Other writers, including Malthus in 1824, made similar critiques, and also noted that, empirically, wages and profits generally increase or decrease in the same direction. Thus, John Craig pointed out that, historically, wages and profits moved not inversely but together. It is rather a startling circumstance attending this theory that what it represents as the necessary effect produced by high wages upon profits in all branches of industry is directly contrary to the experience in each particular trade. Craig went on to explain that a new demand for a commodity at first enriched those who, being in possession of this commodity, are enabled to raise the price. The desire to participate in their gains soon directs new capital to its production, and a rise in wages speedily ensues. Once again, it is not legitimate for Ricardian apologists to dismiss this critique as historical rather than analytical in nature, for empirical generalizations meant to apply directly to reality, as in the Ricardian system, are properly open to empirical rebuttal. Such rebuttal may challenge the conclusions as well as the more familiarly theoretical procedure of challenging the realism of the theory's premises. By the 1840s, the idea of an inverse relation between wages and profits had been completely discarded. But if the Malthusian subsistence theory did not determine wages themselves, then what did?
Not many wandered into this unknown territory, but as early as 1821, the unknown but remarkable Scotsman John Craig emphasized that wages are determined by the supply and demand for labor, and not in any sense by the price of food. Two elements in the demand for labor were stated, though not analyzed in full, the capital from which wages are advanced to the workman, and the demand for the produce of his labor. Craig, by the way, neatly demolished Adam Smith's spurious distinction between productive and unproductive labor. He cogently concluded that wealth may consist in whatever be the object of man's desire, and every employment which multiplies those objects of desire, or which adds to their property of yielding enjoyment, is productive. The next important step in the theory of wages came from Samuel Bailey, who in the course of his definitive critique of Ricardian value theory in 1825, pointed to the crucial role of the productivity of labor in determining wages. The value of labor does not entirely depend on the proportion of the whole produce which is given to the laborers in exchange for their labor but also on the productiveness of labor. The proposition that when labor rises, profits must fall, is true only when its rise is not owing to an increase in its productive powers. If the productive power of labor be augmented, that is, if the same labor produce more commodities in the same time, labor may rise in value without a fall, nay, even with a rise, of profits. One of the critical problems in developing the productivity theory of wages was the Ricardian insistence on emphasizing the alleged laws of aggregate distribution of wages as a whole and as a total share of national product and income, rather than as wage rates of individual units of labor. J. B. Say had presented a productivity theory of wages, but had not analyzed the determination of particular wage rates in any detail. Nassau Sr. in the early 1830s, while confused on the topic of wages, came out for the productivity theory. He also managed to demolish Adam Smith's productive versus unproductive labor doctrine, stressing, as had J.B. Say, production as the flow of services which emanate both from material and immaterial products. The truly revolutionary step forward in the theory of wages, indeed in the theory of all factor pricing, came with Mountefort Longfield in his Lectures on Political Economy. As we have seen, Longfield was concerned to show, in contrast to the Ricardian class conflict theory of income distribution, that workers benefit from capitalist development. Ironically, Longfield's laissez-faire harmonielera was replaced by a far more statist attitude in later life. 
In the course of doing so, Longfield took J.B. Say's correct but vague productivity theory of factor incomes and worked out for the first time a remarkable marginal productivity theory of the rental prices, that is, prices per unit time of capital goods, which Longfield oddly called profits in a typical confusion of returns on capital with the pricing of capital goods that has plagued economics since the early 19th century. Working out the specifics, Longfield showed that the price of each machine will tend to equal the marginal productivity of the machine. That is, the productive value, in terms of value of their products, of the least productive machine which it pays to keep employed on the market, that is, the marginal machine. Thus, for the first time in an unknowing echo of Turgot, Longfield used the proper ceteris paribus method of analyzing productive returns, holding one factor or class of factors constant, varying another set of factors, and analyzing the result. Longfield stopped there in his brilliant pre-Austrian contribution, applying marginal productivity analysis only to capital goods. He was content that the analysis showed that wages, the residual labor income left over after payment to capital, rose as the marginal productivity of capital goods fell with each increase in the amount of capital. In short, the accumulation of capital led to an increase in wages. Furthermore, Longfield demolished any Malthusian fears totally. Not only was hardcore Malthusianism long in the discard, but even the soft-core emphasis on the workers' customary level of wages as determining the supply of labor had the causal chain reversed. Instead, Custom, he sensibly pointed out, is guided by the actual prevailing market wage rather than the other way round. As an anonymous Irish follower wrote in the Dublin University magazine a decade later, July 1845, custom will render it suitable to be paid whatever the prevailing wage rate may be, while it would be considered disgraceful to be paid below that norm. Hence the demand for labor, rather than its supply, will dominate the determination of the market wage. Longfield's further demolition of even soft-core Malthusianism pointed out that population growth can have a favorable effect by widening the market for manufactured goods, thereby raising the marginal productivity of capital goods across the board. Hence, population can grow, capital can develop, and both capitalists and workers will benefit, a far more realistic picture of capitalist development than the Ricardian. Longfield's successor and disciple Isaac Butt, however, was not content to stop there, and he provided an outstanding development of the Longfieldian analysis. In the first place, Butt took the crucial step of seeing that Longfield's marginal productivity analysis could be generalized from capital goods to all factors of production, to wages and to land rent. 
Each of these classes of factors could be analyzed in terms of marginal productivity, and the result would be that each of them would obtain the return or price of the least productive factor profitable to be employed on the market, the marginal laborer or acre of land. Thus, whatever kernel of sense there was to the Ricardian differential return theory of land rent was isolated and incorporated into Butt's brilliant pioneering generalized theory of marginal factor pricing. Not only that, but also built on Say's utility analysis and correct but vague productivity analysis and integrated it, at least in outline, with generalized Longfieldian marginal productivity theory. In short, in a prefiguring of the Austrian menger Werk insight, the value of consumer goods determined by the subjective utility of the goods to consumers is imputed back on the market to the values of the various factors of production, which will be set equal to the marginal value productivity of each factor. Thus the unit price of every type of factor will tend to be equal to its marginal value productivity as imputed back through the competitive market process from the subjective utility of the final products. Unfortunately, this excellent say-long-field-but tradition of productivity theory had no influence and no successors. Although Senior, as a fellow Waitlian, certainly knew Longfield's work, he never referred to him or to Butt, and even Longfield's Irish successors at Trinity College Dublin, while continuing the utility theory of value, neglected the corollary theory of imputation and productivity. It is true that Longfield's marginal productivity analysis gained one faithful follower in England, Joseph Salway Eisdell, whose two-volume work, A Treatise of the Industry of Nations, 1839, propounded a sophisticated version of the Longfieldian theory. The book by the unknown Eisdell, however, sank without trace, gaining no reviews in the journals or citations anywhere else. But if factor pricing had been analyzed, what of profits? If profits could not be explained simply as a residual, then they had to be explained directly, and so some economists began to search for a satisfactory theory of what would determine long-run profits, or what would later be called long-run interest return. For one thing, it was pointed out that Ricardo erred greatly in assuming instantaneous and total mobility of capital, and there was a hearkening back to the more realistic outlook of Adam Smith. A writer in Monthly Review in 1822, for example, stressed the impracticability of transferring capital and the personal acquirements of skill from one business to another. But if profits were only uniform as a long-run tendency, what explained them? Malthus moved closer to the correct view in the Quarterly Review in 1824 by stressing that whereas rents are determined by productivity, 
Profit, for example, that is earned in keeping wine and selling it when it matures, is due to waiting, and the longer the waiting, the greater the margin of profit. A particularly important contribution to the journal literature pointed to the eventually correct theories of profit and interest. This was an article by William Ellis, 1794-1872, in the Benthamite Westminster Review for January 1826. In a highly sophisticated analysis of saving and investment, Ellis pointed out that saving is induced by the expectation of greater enjoyment from deferred than immediate consumption while, on the other hand, investment is called forth by the expectation of profit. In the course of analyzing investment, Ellis, with great perceptiveness, distinguished between profit as a return to risk-taking as against interest as a return on savings that may also carry a risk premium. Particularly interesting was Ellis's pioneering risk theory of profits. The largeness of the profit, he maintained, must be proportioned to the risk incurred in drawing treasure from the hoard and employing it in production. He also keenly stressed the importance of a large expected profit for undertaking technological innovation. New technology is untried, and its introduction must overcome the loss of superseded machinery, the want of skill and practice in workmen, and the uncertainty of the result. All unite in preventing the adoption and application of that which is untried. Chiding previous writers for ignoring innovation and its problems, Ellis pointed out that its difficulties are only conquered by the prospect of the great additional profit with which the adopted invention is expected to be accompanied. Ellis also introduced separating out the elements of gross profit in a business firm and distinguishing them from long-run normal interest. Where an entrepreneur uses his own capital exclusively, his gross profit, Ellis perceptively pointed out, can be broken down into premium for risk, remuneration for the entrepreneur's labor and supervision, and finally the remuneration for the productive employment of his savings, which is called interest. Productive loans in business tend to comprise the interest part of gross business profit. Who was William Ellis, who contributed such a startlingly perceptive and advanced article to one of Britain's distinguished journals? Apparently, this was Ellis's sole foray into economics. Born in London, Ellis became a nonconformist missionary and spent his life working and traveling for the London Missionary Society. Sent to Polynesia from 1816 to 1824, Ellis, who had worked as a gardener in his boyhood, acclimatized many tropical fruits and plants in Polynesia and also set up the first printing press in the South Seas. The fruits of this labor appeared in his two-volume Polynesian Researches, 1829. His interest in the theory of profits soon upon his return from his first Polynesian sojourn appears to have been a sport in Ellis's busy missionary career. 
While he was not as perceptive as Ellis, a similar analytic division of gross and net profits was contributed by the Scottish philosopher Sir George Ramsay, 1800-1871, in an unknown and unremarked work, An Essay on the Distribution of Wealth, 1836. While much of the book was Ricardian, Ramsay adopted the concept of entrepreneur from the French, and he too broke down the gross profits of capital into interest on the use of capital and the profits of enterprise, which was, in turn, divided into wages of management and superintendence and payment for the risk incurred by the masters or entrepreneurs. Ramsey pointed out that, analytically, entrepreneurs receive the profits of enterprise, while capitalists receive interest or profits on capital. In practice, however, the two returns are generally combined as the gross profits of capitalist entrepreneurs. Ramsey was also the first Briton to adopt Destut de Tracy's analysis of the process of production as either change of the form of matter or the geographical place, to which Ramsey added a change in time. 10. Abstinence and Time in the Theory of Profits if profit were perhaps related to risk, what then accounts for the long-run interest component of business profits? The dominant explanation for long-run interest in British economics soon became the abstinence theory of interest. The first presentation of time as the determinant of interest came from a theory related but superior to abstinence. Samuel Bailey's pioneering time preference theory. Bailey's discussion came in the course of his brilliant demolition of Ricardo's labor theory of value and his championing of an alternative utility theory. Bailey begins his discussion of time and value by noting that if one commodity takes more time than another for its production, even using the same amount of capital and labor, its value will be greater. While Ricardo admits a problem here, James Mill, in his Elements of Political Economy, indefatigably asserts that time, being a mere abstract word, could not possibly add to anything's value. Rebutting Mill, Bailey points out that every creation of value implies a mental operation, in short, a subjective analysis of value. Given a particular pleasure, Bailey went on, we generally prefer a present pleasure or enjoyment to a distant one. In short, the omnipresent fact of time preference for human life. Thus, we are willing, even at some sacrifice of property, to possess ourselves of what would otherwise require time to procure it, without waiting during the operation. If any article were offered to us not otherwise attainable except after the expiration of a year, we should be willing to give something to enter upon present enjoyment.
Considerations of time discount influence buyers, sellers, and capitalists, as well as both parties who realize, for example, that wine gains value by being kept for longer periods of time. Bailey, interested in rebutting labor and other objective theories of value rather than explaining interest per se, did not press on to explain time preference as the basis of interest, nor to discuss the time discount rate. But his analysis clearly paved the way for the later Austrian time preference theory, although Böhm-Bawerk, the creator of the theory, remained unaware of Bailey's insights. Six years later, G. Paulette Scroop, despite his unfortunate fringe views on Say's law, made an important contribution to profit or interest theory by pioneering an abstinence theory of interest. Writing in the Quarterly Review for January 1831, Scroop deplored the absence of any genuine theory of profit in Ricardo, and proceeded to set forth an abstinence theory. Despite Böhm-Bawerk's uncharitable strictures on the more highly developed abstinence theory of Nassau Sr., there is not a great deal of difference between the abstinence view and the later and more sophisticated Austrian theory of time preference. Profit, said Scroop, was the compensation for abstinence from immediate gratification, involved in saving and investing rather than consuming. But Scroop did not stop at outlining an abstinence theory. Much of profit, he pointed out, is the narrow form of profit identical with interest. What is vulgarly called profit, as Scroop called it, is identical with Ellis's gross profit. This consists, Scroop went on, of interest on capital plus insurance against the risks of business plus wages for the superintendent's labor of the capitalist. Scroop also added monopoly rent, in which he lumped the possession of superior soil or location along with the gains from patented inventions or processes. But the locus classicus of the abstinence theory was the lectures of Nassau W. Sr. It is true that they were not published until 1836, when they were published as The Outline of the Science of Political Economy, and also as the article on political economy for the Encyclopedia Metropolitana. But they were delivered earlier as lectures at Oxford in 1827 and 1828. Senior pointed out that savings and the creation of capital necessarily involve a painful present sacrifice, an abstinence from immediate consumption, which would only be incurred in expectation of an offsetting reward. Unfortunately, Senior lacked the concept of time preference, so he was fuzzy about the specific motivation that would lead people to prefer present to future consumption. But he came to very similar conclusions, relating the degree of abstinence pain, or as the Austrians would later put it, time preference for the present over the future, to the least civilized peoples and the worst educated classes, who are generally the most improvident and consequently the least abstinent.
Even more interesting and valuable than Senior's abstinence theory was his developed theory of capital, which strongly anticipated the Austrian doctrine. For Senior saw that factors of production could be divided into two classes, the original primary ones, land or natural resources, and labor, and all the secondary intermediate goods which are produced by the joint efforts of the primary factors, as well as pre-existing intermediate factors. Eventually, the intermediate factors are transformed into consumer goods that are able to satisfy the wants of the consumers. It might be thought that ultimately the intermediate factors, or capital goods, might be reduced to nature and labor, but this cannot be done, because another element is needed to combine the primary factors into more and more capital. Abstinence for again anticipating the Austrians, Senior saw that a crucial aspect of this process of production is that it must take time, and therefore an act of abstinence, a term, added Senior, by which we express the conduct of a person who either abstains or designedly prefers the production of remote to that of immediate results. Capital, or capital goods, then, taking time, are the result of the combination of land, labor, and abstinence, and consists of the application of present resources to future production. Capital goods are produced rather than primary factors of production, and the way in which production and living standards may increase indefinitely is by using the products of labor and nature as the means of further production. Capital, Senior sums up, is not a simple productive instrument. It is in most cases the result of all the three productive instruments combined. Some natural agent must have afforded the material, some delay of enjoyment must in general have reserved it from unproductive use, and some labor must in general have been employed to prepare and preserve it. Senior, then, does not simply have a naive productivity theory of profit or interest, while all factors earn their productivity, and therefore labor earns wages, and land or natural agents earn rent, capital goods are not simple productive agents, but complex products of other factors. And so, peeling away the influence of land and labor, the ultimate distinct productive contribution of capital is interest, the return to abstinence. While not fully arriving at it, Senior was here groping for a distinction between the gross return of capital goods, whose productivity is reflected in their market prices, and their net return, after deducting from the wages, rents, and prices of other intermediate goods in their production, which equals the rate of interest and is payment for abstinence or time preference. In his discussion of how increasing provision of capital funds can allow ever-increasing extensions of the division of labor and the production of consumer goods, 
Nassau Sr. captured the essence of the Austrian insight that capital, and eventually production, expands with increased saving because of the superior physical productivity of many longer or more roundabout processes of production. Since it takes more time to invest in these longer processes and intermediate factors, there must be greater willingness to invest in future as opposed to present enjoyment. Meanwhile, Senior's fellow Whateleyan, Mountefort Longfield, was working along similar lines. Even if capitalists, qua capitalists and not as laborers, produce nothing tangible, they perform a vital service in saving capital and paying factors to engage in time-consuming processes of production. While most of the British classicists, including Ricardo, spoke perfunctorily of a period of production, they linked it strictly to the one-year harvest cycle in agriculture. Longfield was able to break out of this agricultural framework, moving toward making the time dimension of production a variable in his analysis. He did this by linking the period of production directly to the division of labor and identifying increases in one with extensions of the other. Longfield accomplished this linkage by repeating Adam Smith's famous discussion of the pin factory and the division of labor, while showing that extending that division will bring more roundabout processes into play. In short, greater capital investment will eventually lower the labor time required to produce a unit of output, but only by increasing the waiting time between the initial point of investment and the eventual unit of consumer goods. During the time of waiting for the eventual product, the workers must be able to live, and this living is precisely what the capitalists provide. They do so by abstaining from consumption, thereby allowing the worker to consume something produced by the toil of others, although nothing produced by him has yet been consumed by anyone. In short, while the product of labor is off in the future, the capitalist saves money now and hires the worker. The person who employs him, the worker, and directs his labor, in general pays him in the first instance, and repays himself by the sale of the articles thus produced. In this way, Longfield was able to offer a remarkable anticipation of the Bermbaverkian theory of capital. The capitalist's gross profit, then, consists of two parts— a return for the service of advancing wages to the workers until the product is sold, long-run interest, and returns for the labor of direction and for the assumption of business risk. Longfield made no attempt to stress the latter and concentrated on the former, the return for the service of advancing wages. Hence, as Longfield points out in anticipation of the sophisticated and highly perceptive Austrian discounted marginal productivity theory of factor pricing, 
The worker, in effect, pays the capitalist a discount from his marginal productivity for the service of supplying money now rather than having to wait for the sale of the product. Again, Longfield. The capitalist pays the wages immediately and in return receives the value of the worker's labor to be disposed of to the best advantage. Hence the value of the labor fixed in any article is greater than the wages of that labor. The difference is the profit made by the capitalist for his advances. It is, as it were, the discount which the laborer pays for prompt payment. It is only a slight step from this analysis to the identification of this discount as a payment for time preference. Sir George Ramsay, in his work of 1836, also stressed the importance of time in production and capital, though hardly in as sophisticated a manner as senior. Time, as well as labor, enters into capital, and Ramsay points as an example to two casks of identical wine. The cask that ages several years longer increases in value, so that value therefore depends not only on labor expended, but also on the length of time during which any portion of the product of that labor has existed as a fixed capital. Lastly, in 1839, Joseph S. Eisdell, an unknown English follower of Longfield, generalized marginal productivity theory, also noting the important service of the capitalists in serving the worker by advancing his wages immediately on the performance of his work before the goods are ready for sale he being too necessitous to wait until the sale and the receipt of the money for the goods. Here, Eisdell captured the essence of the service the capitalist renders the worker, and for which the latter is willing to pay the former his discount or profit return, the service of paying the worker now, at present, while the capitalist takes on the burden of waiting for his return until some point in the future. <laughs>